I think it's the sponge you're using. It's a magic sponge. Is it sponge worthy? <laughs> but um, bum. This is the RC Roundtable, a casual discussion about all aspects of flying model airplanes. All right, everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Joining me is our usual gang of characters. We have Lee Ray. Hello. And Terry Dunn. Hi there. Uh, just to let you know, Lee is on vacation, so he's out and about somewhere in one of those states where it's nice and warm and sunny. So he uh, may not be completely himself this time, but we'll see how it goes. <laughs> the pina coladas are kicking in. <laughs> Okay, well, let's uh, talk about some uh, what uh, new products that may be coming out and things that caught our eye. Lee, Lee, you had something you wanted to talk about? Not at all, actually. I don't know what you're talking okay, about. Okay, well, then we'll just start with Terry. <laughs> Terry, you had something. <laughs> well, uh, as we put this together, you know, t uh, Terry had some great ideas of uh, planes that came out, and we all took a look at them. I'm looking at the Crazy Wing, and... My comment on this uh, is I've seen this before. I've seen this uh, uh, out on some videos. Uh, it's it's cool. It's unique. But I, I mean, help me out here, guys. It's it's a it's a zaggy with the motor in front, right? I mean, it's a flying wing. Um, I've seen it fly. It's really cool. But I don't. Gosh, I can't believe I'm gonna say it. I don't get it. I mean, well, well, I don't know. If that's being fair. I wouldn't really call it a. Of course, zaggy. you're gonna say that fits. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's be clear. We're talking about the Great Plains Crazy Wing, which is a electric-powered flying wing. What's the wingspan on that guy? 35 inches. Yeah, so it's, we're looking at a park flyer. But yeah. I, I think any comparisons to a Zaggy are kind of far-fetched. Yeah, I would agree. This is a flying built-up, also built-up, covered with uh, transparent monocoat-like covering. Uh, it's more like those flying wing racers you saw, like a... Um, was there a Sig? Sig something? Sig Wonder. Sig Wonders? Sig Wonder, yeah. That's what it well, reminds actually, me more of. What's the other one? The Oh, no, I'm thinking of the Shrike. It has a swept wing. But, yeah, the Wonder is very close to this. Uh, it has the kind of, tails. The, yeah, except that the, the Wonder has the tail actually behind the wing. So this one is, it's, you know, it's part of the wing. It's sort of a shortened yeah. Sig Wonder, but it looks like it's a very light construction. And more traditional type of plane than a, a Zagi, as far as being all foam and a, and a pusher. And this is a tractor. Yeah, and of this course. is a plank flying wing, so it has. And it's no red. Sweep. I mean, <laughs> I know it's totally different guy. <laughs> I, my my point being, it's a flying wing, and yes. um, and I'm not dissing it for that purpose. It's really unique and it flies fast, yada yada. But is that? I don't know. I I saw it and I I I kind of just brush it off. I went. Eh. I don't. I'm, and it's just me. That's me. I'm done. Thank you very much. Next. No, time. no, that's fine. <laughs> it's not for everybody. And I certainly can't say that. This is just something, I guess, like something small and easy to stick in a car and maybe a little bit different than the usual foamies and maybe even pretty fast once you put some power into it. Pretty, I think it rolls really, really fast, like a drill bit, as some people say. Yeah. And, you know, this is predictable because once you start getting into to multi-rotors like Leah's, then all the other types of RC models don't seem as attractive anymore. <laughs> Zing! <laughs> the multi-rotor goggles. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all I have to say about that. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty good price. It's 50 bucks. Uh, you look at what... Oh, wow. Know, 
it's you know the whole. I mean, that's not including any electronics. It's just the well, sure, yeah, airframe. Uh, but it, you know, I'm looking at this little photo in the bottom of Tower's website, and it's the wing already, you know, coated, and they, it appears that the, uh, um, I guess you call them. Well, you call them wingerons. <laughs> not elevons. What do you call them? <laughs> no, there's still elevons, right? Because it doesn't have a separate elevator like the Wonder does. It's, it's just those two control surfaces. Correct. Okay. There's still elevons. Yeah. It's going to be now, decent. It looks attached. Fits a, it may be worth noting, I think your buddy Gary Wright designed this. Yeah, I was going to say that. Uh, I actually know the designer of this. I've met him on several occasions, and we know each other by name. And I uh, actually uh, met him, what, last year when we were up at the EFAST? Right. And, and he's been the best. And he's been the best, yes. Yeah. He's a, he's a actually really accomplished helicopter pilot as well. But uh, he's known for building or actually designing the E3D plane, which... Right. I actually Which, had yeah, one. We've talked about that before. Yes. Yeah, so this is the same guy he built. So he knows how to build really good light structures that are pretty strong, actually, and fly really good. So this is not some uh, somebody uh, unknown, you know, person in Asia that just kind of whipped something up. This is somebody who's been in the hobby for a long time and really knows uh, what flies well. And likely he built it for himself that he wanted to fly, and it just kind of uh, morphed from there. One yeah, of you us should ask him. <laughs> Sorry, I was going to say one of us is getting hate mail from Gary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, we should probably clarify. We have not talked to him in any way. We're we're completely estimating all of this. Yeah, that's true. We, we this was a you know super secret product development. When when we last talked to him, he didn't mention anything about this until the official announcement. So uh, it looks pretty good in the video, but I wonder if. What we're seeing on that is a 3S setup or 4S. I mean, it's fast, but it's not crazy fast. So I'd be interested to see what setup he was using there. Uh, good point. Um, I think that the motor, I think I saw him post something on RC Groups, and he said something about the motor that's listed as the one he used and thought it was pretty good. Uh, but I can't remember the specific details. Um, I think he used a relatively small motor for it. But I'm going through my hazy memory. So. Well, another thing about Gary is that one of the funniest things we were all chatting about at dinner one night after best was how he took a slow stick and, you know, superfied it. <laughs> it oh, yeah. That thing was hovering, you know. And so he, he definitely likes to overpower the aircraft and, and make them do things they, they shouldn't be doing. So, I mean, it, it, it does look pretty cool in the videos. It's very, it's very quick. Yeah, he's no slouch. I remember he had a plane I thought was really neat. When you look at it, you think, why is he flying this? It was, I can't remember if it was a slow stick. I think it was, but it, he had a lot more dihedral in it than it should have had. And right, it was like 45 degrees. It yes, looked, it was really crazy looking. But it, it looked did, accidental. <laughs> but it did awesome aerobatics and stuff with this thing. And it was still like... rolls with rudder. Yes, it was like two channel, three channels, I think. No, no ailerons. Right, yeah. just elevator rudder throttle. Yeah, it was Yeah, it was just a joy to watch him fly this crazy thing. Yeah. So, good times. Good times, good times. All right. Well, speaking of good times, I think, Terry, you had something you wanted to – what do you have on your table? Well, the product that caught my eye this week, and I think it's been out for a few months now, but the Ares brand – you know, we talked about the quadcopter that Lee has now, um, but they have a different kind of quadcopter called the V-Hawk X4, and it's 
a rotary wing. What do you call it? Like an Osprey, the V-22 Osprey. Tilt rotor. A tilt rotor, yeah. Four tilt rotors. And it looks really cool. And so it transitions from standard quadcopter scenario to a regular fixed wing in flight. So I'm anxious to, to see one in person. Yeah, it's really neat looking. It's a kind of futuristic uh, transport or something like that. He's got Air Force markings I see on it. Uh, I recall I actually saw that at a hobby store and thought it was really neat and but forgot about it and haven't really seen anything online about it. I wonder if it's, um, what's the story, if, if it's expensive. Did, did you get a price on that? Um, let's see. Buy now. <laughs> now, I remember that a flight test had a review on something similar from Gropner, so I don't know if it's the same thing with different mm. stickers or just a, a parallel product development, but theirs looked pretty good. It reminds me of the old Bell tilt rotor from, I think, the 50s or 60s. Yeah. Uh, except they had shrouds, but it still was a four-motored, uh, all four motors tilt, and uh, it looks like it... <laughs> it looks like more of a contraption than an airplane. But, yeah. uh, now, looking at the prices here, they offer ready-to-fly, a pair-to-fly, which I guess means you would use um, a, a transmitter compatible with, they use high-tech uh, radio gear. And then there's also a ready-for-receiver, so you would add your own radio system. No, um, actually the pair-to-fly is out of stock, so it doesn't show a price. The ready to fly is five hundred. The ready for receiver is four hundred. So not exactly cheap, but eh, I think you're talking for speed controls, a, a special kind of flight controller. Uh, let's see what are the specs on this guy. Twenty-seven and a half inch wingspan, thirty-three inches long, weighs thirty-one ounces, uses a four S thirteen hundred. So it's park flyer size. Yeah, it's not very it's big. Just a very Complex park flyer. Yeah, I imagine it's got a whole bunch of flight controllers and things in it uh, to keep it stable. Yeah, but it looks really cool. It does. It's a really snazzy-looking plane. Yeah, it's just probably a little pricey for a small plane, although it has a lot of technology built into it. Yeah, I'm not saying it isn't worth that, but I think it puts it out of the let's give it a go on a whim type thing. Yeah, You'd have to really be committed to it to, to drop that kind of money. It looks like uh, something you'd see at Walmart in the toy section, you know? Here, fly this. <laughs> so, not that it does that. I mean, sure, it's obviously flying has a better flight performance, but <laughs> doesn't it just stick out to you like that? You could just imagine it behind some clear plastic window. <laughs> it, you, know, you know, it does look like something G.I. Joe would fly, right? Well, there you go. And that's not an insult. No, 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 but it, it just looks something kind of wacky and cool at the same time. Yeah. Uh, have you seen any videos of it flying? Uh, no, not this particular one. Like I said, I saw the thing on flight test that looked like a similar model, but I don't know if it's actually comparable or not. Hmm. Yeah, so well, time will tell. Yeah, time will tell. Well, for me, uh, I, the next thing is the, looks like Unique has a new multi-rotor called a Typhoon H. And what really struck me is that some of the new technology they've been implemented in this design. Uh, notably, it has ultrasonic collision prevention uh, and uh, rechargeable landing gear, folding arms for compact storage, and uh, quite a few different integrated autom autonomous flight modes, as they call it. Uh, 
looks like you can have it circle around you or follow you or do sort of a, a pull away automatically, sort of cinematic type uh, camera work, which is really interesting. And also they've reworked the transmitter and video downlink. It's got this really neat military style transmitter. Uh, but uh, as someone who's actually flown a couple of uniques uh, and I think a chroma, the one thing that I thought was the only letdown was the video link was a Wi-Fi connection and it would periodically blank out and freeze. Uh, I think you've seen that in yours, Terry, haven't you? Or don't you have any Yeah, I did a review of the Chroma 4K, which also has a transmitter with a built-in monitor. And it's really convenient because you don't have separate equipment to, to set up for the downlink. But there were times when you would either get a few seconds of latency in the signal. Um, I don't remember if mine ever just stopped completely, but there were definitely times that it was several seconds behind what was actually happening. Yeah, it looks like with the Typhoon H, they've reworked that, so it's got a, a true uh, video transmission link that they're advertising as a one-mile range. So it looks like they're no longer using Wi-Fi, but maybe a dedicated frequency. I didn't quite catch what it was, but uh, I thought that was a good but, addition. Yeah, that's significant. And with the retractable gear, that um, gimbal can rotate 360. Yes, yes, so. and they advertise that 360 rotation. Uh, also, you can add a second transmitter, so you can have somebody control a camera independently? Yes. And that's something that DJI has had for a while. I think they introduced that when they had their Inspire, but that's a you know, $4,000 setup. So, yeah, it's um, it's some neat stuff. I think its intended competition is the Phantom 4, and they're pretty close feature-wise, performance-wise. I don't know. I've tested the Phantom 4, but I haven't got my hands on one of these yet but I would certainly be interested to, to do that. Yeah, I had an opportunity to fly a, a friend's unique, and I was really impressed with uh, how easy it was to fly, stability, easy of ease of use, that kind of stuff. So, uh, and this, oh, yeah, one other thing, since this is a six-rotor, it has built-in smarts that if you lose a motor or prop, that it can still fly without killing itself. Yeah, so a little bit of redundancy there. Yeah, she so got some redundancy, which is really good. Well, let me ask you a question, Fitz, uh, opinion-wise. I can see if a motor just stopped working or a prop came off that it would be able to recover from that. I wonder what happened if you got a prop that lost one blade. So it still works, but it's extremely out of balance. Would it be smart enough to shut that one motor down Oh wow! before it shook itself apart? That's a good question. My My guess would be probably no, but that's without actually trying it. Uh, yeah, it's unanswerable. Uh, yeah, obviously it would not be producing as much thrust there, so the opposite one would slow down to compensate. But it would try to compensate, but unless it knows that it lost a prop, and to know that you'd have to either detect a vibration or maybe a current sense or something like that. And I suspect they don't have it that sophisticated. But guess yeah, this is I, just I, an I engineering know. guess. Yeah, I. I think that's a very rare scenario, but th those are the crazy things my mind comes up with. Yeah, maybe not be as rare as you think. You know, losing a prop, fatigue, that kind of stuff. I've lost blades on propellers before. Be pretty significant. It happens. It happens. <laughs> Murphy says it will happen. I was just thinking uh, some years ago, uh, before multi rotors were a thing, me and a friend and I, we actually had a setup with a helicopter like that where 
I flew a helicopter, and he had a camera on a gimbal with a secondary transmitter. And so I'd fly around, and he would aim the camera to get some video footage and that kind of stuff. Uh, it's sort of what's old is new again kind of thing. Yeah, it seems like a pretty good concept. So it can be a lot of pilot workload, to, especially if you're staring down at a screen, which is kind of the last thing you want to do when you're flying anything. Um, even if it's something as slow as a quadcopter might be, or a hexacopter in this case, you, to me it's always an uneasy feeling to be looking down at the screen and be in control of something that you're not looking at. Do you happen to know what this thing will go for? I didn't catch the price on it. I was just looking for that. Um, I think it's in the same price point as the Phantom Four. Wasn't it thirteen hundred? Uh, that sounds right. Where'd you see that? Uh, I think of the shopping cart. I was looking at the screen. I feel your attitude. No. Uh, in fact, you guys have just been talking this whole time, and not once have you asked me my opinion of this creature. Yeah, throw it out there, man. What do you think, Lee? I really like this thing. No, no, really. What do you think? <laughs> I really I really like this. Uh, no, no, no. Where, where is the real Lee, and where have you done with him? <laughs> this is evil. This is evil stuff. No. <laughs> Are you under duress? No. no. Yes. Well, uh, Tap it out in Morse code. If, if hopefully some listeners know this, I'm a photographer by trade, and uh, I, you know when I first got into photography, it was following my father's uh, wedding business, but I was always taking photos of aircraft because we were you know flying together and stuff, and I've been to a lot of air shows. But when I was doing um, weddings, I was also getting requests to do you know really unique videos as well. And I know a couple of wedding photographers, or excuse me, videographers that do have multi-rotors that you know are licensed to record. And this sparked my interest not to go back into the wedding industry, but I, w I would love to do more video footage with this type of device at an air show. There are people who have them now, they just sit there and hover and they face the crowd and they go back and forth. But I haven't seen some high quality coverage of... Uh, some good scale. That's just me. I mean, I ha I haven't been actively looking, but this. I, mean, I will say, when Terry sent this link, I did a double take and I read through this whole, you know, web page on, and I was like really impressed and going, "Gosh, you know." And when the price was only what was it? Fits thirteen hundred. I mean, that's not bad for what you get here. It's it's a really nice package. I haven't seen any of the reviews. I haven't seen any video of it, but I am definitely going to research this little sucker further. And there you are. Well, when, you, when you say cover scale events, do you mean actually try to get video of the models flying? Yeah, yeah. Of, well, when I say scale, I mean like large scale, like the event I was at recently. You know, just to have some, you know, really nice pan stuff like that, you know, aircraft flying by. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. It, typically, I mean, you know this, uh, I'm not telling you anything new, but with the wide-angle lenses, you're not getting much detail on that. You're getting a lot of background and, you know, I guess, um, large-scale type views. And that's what you're looking for? That's a question. Well, it's just, part, I mean, it's not the entire video, it's part of the video. And I think that just adds to some of the, um, no, the... The idea is that I, it, it would add to the video. You would still have someone on the ground, you know, videotaping, zooming, and so forth. This is just one of those other angles. I mean, Fitz, you had, you know, we, we like at best, we had the GoPro out on the runway during the huge warbird fly. Um, some people had their, their quads up in the air. But just to, to add to the, the whole entire video package, I think it'd be 
really neat. And, and not to mention, just it's really high quality. Is that what you call B-roll footage? Yeah. Not necessarily. I mean, you, Terry, you remember the one of the review videos I did, and it had some uh, drone footage of the oh, yeah. taxing and flying around. It, it yeah. adds uh, some extra flair and, and uh, production quality to any videos you make. Uh, but, but I agree with Lee when I read this too, and I, I thought that it seems to have things that would be more professional, like the ability to control a camera separately with another transmitter. Some of the uh, pull-away modes and, and uh, the H, the 4K camera and that kind of stuff, I think. Yeah. And, and, of course, retractable landing gear, so everything's completely out of the way. Yeah. And not to be argumentative, but some of those filming modes are on that Chroma 4K that I did. And DJI has a few of those, at least on the Phantom 4. I'm not sure about the Phantom 3. And the 3D Robotic Solo had some really neat ones. I think that one... I was most impressed with. You could set different waypoints and the positioning of the quad at each of those waypoints, and it was really neat. I like. So I, I think that's a new trend. I mm. like that it films at 120 frames per second. In 4K. At HD. Oh, okay. It's 30, 720 at 120. Yes. Yeah, oh uh, no, one, t- 1080. Oh, 1080 at 1080. Wow. I said yes. HD. <laughs> Come on, buddy. <laughs> You're saying no, that I'm just I, not keeping up. <laughs> I think 720 is technically HD as well. Oh, whatever. HD, 1080, excuse me. 120 frames per second. The nice thing about that is that you can get some nice slow-mo passes out of that. Right. Uh, and I that that would be one of those benefits. You've seen me use that before, um, such as uh, Mike Label's B24. You know, slow it down doing, you know, it's just it's just a feature that's nice to have because some cameras just don't do that, and that was one of the the items that sparked my interest. But you know, I also like the one the, the item that you guys talked about. Although I I think Terry, you're right. You're throwing single blades off of a, a multi rotor. <laughs> it's just right, you're running into something if you're doing that, my friend. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the the I, the fact that it is one of those. Comments I've made to other people. You know, if you get a quadcopter and you lose a, a motor, you're you're going in. You know, you're you're digging a hole, and dramatically. <laughs> and and I don't think a lot of people stress that the fact that this one has a a five rotor fail safe mode. I think that is an impressive feature. That's something they should tout. Um, yeah, and it, in addition to that, I, I kind of glossed over it. It's got collision avoidance, so it's got these two ultrasonic sensors that lets it know it's about to smack into something, and it'll presumably stop and either just hover or reposition itself. And that also is a nice feature. In fact, I remember seeing a video where uh, some sort of multi-rotor got out of either lost signal or something, so it went into return to home mode, but didn't know that there was a big mountain between it and its home. It ends up smacking into the side of this huge mountain thing and fell about a couple hundred feet down. Unfortunately, it retrieved it, but it wasn't smart enough to know that something had gotten away between it and home. Right. And I'm sure that there are online threads already that are hundreds of pages thick that are comparing this uh, multi-rotor to some or all versions of the Phantom. And the Phantom 4 also has collision avoidance. And it looks like this one is like the Phantom 4, only forward-facing. Actually, the Phantom has uh, downward-facing sensors, too, but nothing above or to the sides or behind. So... Yeah, it's collision avoidance, but it's not fully mature. I think there's mm. a lot of development that needs to go 
into these before it's a really effective uh, system. I, I was thinking the same thing. I didn't think it was just going to you know, be completely you know, foolproof, but it's, a, it's another nice feature to have. And, and honestly, for us, even in its mature state, it's probably not a big deal for us because we're not the type of guys who are going to fly close to things. <laughs> we may not, but of course, there's always somebody out there that's going to, you know. Well, sure, for the pro photographer guys who want to do those wedding shots or whatever dramatic film shots, who are willing to get up close to stuff, yeah, that could be a, a significant feature. I'm not sure that I'm ever that guy. I, was I have say. too much AMA in my blood. <laughs> I'm yeah. going to do some more research and look into that thing. I, I'm, I'd like to see what what else it has to offer, especially for those people who have had their hands on it and have done reviews. I'll so, tell you, I'm on a wait list to get one, um, but I have no idea when it's going to be here. So I'll share my thoughts when I have one in hand. If it's something that's good enough to give Lee a second thought, I look forward to hearing more about it as well. So we'll see how it works, and hopefully it, it's all of what it promises. Okay, on that thought, we'll go take a break, and we'll be right back. Hell yeah. Well, summer is here, and like everybody else, I've gone and taken a vacation. In fact, I just got back from vacation, and since I live in Houston, uh, I did a smart thing and went north to where it's much cooler. Uh, since I am actually from Connecticut, I went up there to visit friends and family, and while I'm up there, I always take time to see what kind of RC hobby stuff is going on and even visit a few hobby stores. And fortunately enough, while I was there, there actually was a couple of different fly-ins in the area, and one of them was the Wintonberry Electric Fly-In, which I actually went over and took a look at. I didn't bring anything to fly, but I had a real good time just kind of looking around, seeing what the difference between flying here in Texas and up in, say, the Northeast and New England. And uh, it really brings to me kind of a little bit of the difference and actually how good I have it here in Texas because up in the Northeast, uh, I don't know if you guys have ever been in any flying fields up there, uh, typically, they're not very big. A lot of times, they're right smack in the middle of some sort of farm field. Would, depending on the time of year, you may have rows of corn that would easily suck up a plane and make it disappear for quite a while if you're not careful on landing. Uh, in fact, I went to one flying field uh, in a town called Farmington, and it's a really nice town. It's got some, some ritzy uh, schools and stuff in it. And their flying field is a little patch in the middle, literally in the middle of a farm cornfield and uh fortunately they hadn't grown up that tall yet but uh, it looked pretty hairy and trying to get in and out of the thing sometimes anyways it, it was really nice i there was another flying that i missed called a uh, dawn patrol which was all world war one airplanes and i really wanted to see it but i just didn't get around it was at opposite ends of the state where i needed to be around the same time and it uh, but a, a really nice concept where you can meet Sunday morning and you fly World War One airplanes for a while and then you go off and do other things. Uh, and another thing I like to do is, is visit hobby stores. I always like to visit hobby stores no matter where I go. And there were several uh, hobby stores that make a point. And if you're ever in the area, uh, one is RC Hobbies and More. 
uh, which is in a town I can't remember up near what they call New Hartford. And it's it's funny. This is hobby stores out in the middle of nowhere. Even in, even in a small state, you drive for 40 minutes and you're out in the woods. And it's like, who would put a hobby shop out here? But when you get there, it is probably the nicest hobby shop in the state. It's, it's really big. It caters only to RC stuff. It's got a little few plastic models, but it's all RC stuff. Planes, cars, boats, uh, multi-rotors, helicopters. Really well stocked. People seem pretty friendly. A lot of stuff. I even picked up a few goodies uh, for, for my, some of my hobbies. And uh, it was just a really neat place. In fact, I took a friend to take a look at it because he had never seen it. And he was really impressed as well. And uh, on the other end of the spectrum is a place in a town called Manchester that I went to called Time Machine Hobbies. And while well, they do have some RC stuff, a significant amount, but they're mainly known for their train stuff. And they have a huge train layout, HO scale. I, I don't know how big it was, but I, a guess would be maybe 5,000 square feet, maybe. It's, it's huge, and they have it open several times a month for you can go in and watch them run the trains and stuff. And they're known for that, and they also do dollhouse and toys, and they have a pretty large selection of plastic models. So it, it, it's a real neat place to go. It's an old factory building that's probably been there for 100 years or something like that, uh, which is a, a, another interesting thing about some of these places. Uh, and it's just, uh, it, it makes the, the vacation go much easier, and I can kind of enjoy my hobby while away from home and still see some neat stuff, because I always like to see, you never know what you might find. In fact, I always find some little an old model or a bargain or some knick-knack that's, you know, out of my local hobby shop. And one last thing I'll mention is one of the things I like to do is change my location on RC groups. So that if you ever go to the RC groups and you, you look at their classified section, you can search by distance from your location. And so what I do is I actually change my location to where I am at the, that point in time, and that way I can see if somebody has something interesting that I can just drive over. Because a lot of times you might find a, a plane or something that somebody is selling that they won't ship. And so I can just go over and, and buy it and ship it myself because they don't want to be responsible for any damages. In fact, I did that a year or two ago. Somebody had a really rare plane that I really, really wanted, but he wouldn't ship it. And so I told him, hey, well, hey, I'll be up there in a couple of months. Uh, and I drove up to, it was actually, I think, in New Hampshire, but it was a relatively short drive, and picked up the plane, shoved it in the car, got back to a relative's house where I was staying, took it apart, shipped it back home in several very large boxes. And so I was able to get a plane that otherwise I would never have been able to get because the guy definitely was not going to ship it. But I could ship it to myself. He doesn't care. You did that on this recent trip, or that was another trip? That was another trip, I think, last year. Ah. I was looking around this recent trip for something, and somebody actually did have a kind of a neat plane for sale that I was tempted to go take a look at, but I decided that I've got enough planes for now, and it wasn't that interesting. Now, I've never been to any RC fields in Connecticut, but I have been just over the state line in New York at Rhinebeck, which I guess technically is a full-scale airport tucked in the woods up in the mountains and they have a once a year i think it's only once a year but they have a fly in there and in the morning they do the rc planes 
and I think it's limited to pre-World War II. And then in the afternoon, they have the usual full-scale air show for the, the stuff that's housed at Rhinebeck, which is also the same era. A lot of really neat stuff there. So that was a fun day. RC and full-scale and museum-type stuff all day long. It was really cool. Yeah, Rhinebeck's a really neat place if you've ever been. If you're ever in the New York, Connecticut area uh, or so, Massachusetts, it's definitely worth a drive. I think they're... During the summertime, every weekend they have a, some sort of show going on, and it's great for the kids and, and to see pre-World War II planes. And even off a ride, you can buy a ride in some sort of biplane, if I remember correctly. Yeah, a uh, new standard. New standard, yes. Also, don't they, have, don't they have a replica of uh, the Charles Lindbergh's and Ryan? Oh, do they? I you know what? Uh, that sounds familiar. That did not fly the weekend that I was there, or the day that I was there. But they have all sorts of stuff. Some of it's a replica, or some of it's replica with an original engine. Um, they, they have so many different things. It's neat. Yeah. They. I saw a uh, an actual rotary engine. Several of them actually run, and uh, an old Liberty engine that they have on a trailer. Mm-hmm. Some really neat stuff that you just can't see anywhere else. They have, they have a pre World War One plane too, like a like a. I don't think it was a Bellaria, but that kind of plane. They have a Cadron. That, yeah, that's it. And they did, yeah, the, and did the short hop with it. I think. Yeah, I think the they're saying is the pilots are only willing to fly it as high as they'll jump. <laughs> <laughs> but they fly. Mm, they fly, and it's fascinating to watch. Yeah. Well, that's all I have. I just thought it might be interesting on my little trip away. Lee, you were about to jump in there. What do you got? Oh, I was saying, what a great idea about the RC groups. I was changing my uh, location right now. (laughs) 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 I'm somewhere else right now, and I'm going to buy stuff. Uh, Well, from my little vacation, it wasn't wasn't now. It was a couple weeks ago, but I attended the Bomberfield Warbird Day at uh, Bomberfield USA in Monteville, Texas. It was a... It was just an all-warbird event. Uh, took lots of photos. We'll have the link online because uh, that's what I do. I did also you participated as well, and I did partic- I was going to get there. <laughs> Sorry, because uh, you'll, you'll see uh, two of the planes I I brought. To, there were a couple of other electric planes there. This was definitely a noisy event, uh, but I did bring the uh, P thirty eight that I got from you, Terry. Well, actually, both the the P thirty eight and the Zero. Um, and I did fly those and, uh, had a great time there. It was quite hot. Uh, I, I've been out there before at, at a summertime event and it was never this, this bad. I was just dying out there and I was in the shade too. Um, but, uh, a lot of, a lot of cool planes and sadly, uh, the part that I hate to report in this podcast, uh, I had, I have to report that, uh, Randy Larson lost Fuddy Daddy at the event. <clears throat> Again, the photos will tell the tale. Um, he and another pilot were flying their B-17s over the runway, and uh, Randy, Randy got a little too close to the ground, and he lost, uh, first he lost his uh, starboard engines. Uh, he was trying to come around, then he lost uh, uh, the inboard port engine, and then that was that. And then, unfortunately, he, he <laughs> this is the weirdest part, he hit the only tree out in the field where it crashed and there's a tree there and i don't know if i'll have the photos in there but you can go online and look on facebook or bomber field but 
it it's just sitting there resting on this tree. It's in several pieces. He he's promised to put it back together, and I know he will. In fact, lately he's been uh, putting a lot of his uh, older planes or planes he's not flying up for sale, and people are picking him up left and right. So I have a, a good feeling that we'll see uh, Fuddy Duddy Two up in the air real soon. Well, that's great that he'll put it back together because it was pretty look pretty heavily damaged based on the pictures. Uh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> quite damaged, yeah. But I did. Did all of the engines survive? I, gosh, I don't know. Um, they may have, but I think he had mentioned he was going for more power. So I think he'll uh, he'll be changing them out. <laughs> if I recall, during your interview, he had mentioned that most people or several people had cautioned him not to fly so low on his passes. I don't know what happened. I mean, he's. I, I, I did mention in one, someone's comment who posted some photos, there was a heavy crosswind. I mean, it was a direct crosswind on that runway. And I'm wondering if when he was coming and doing his flyby, that right wing just dipped down a little too much and kind of got shoved down. Because um, those were the first two engines that quit. Um, but yes, he was low. <laughs> and well, as we well, all good. That, That's his trademark. <laughs> it is. And I hope he doesn't change it when he rebuilds. Um, and... Oh, I say some one person had mentioned, you know, it, it was a bad decision on his part to risk that plane at such a low altitude. And, you know, if you've ever seen him fly and he's flown that thing lots of times, he's a really good pilot. And so this was uh this was an accident. I don't think he, you know, did anything wrong. He was flying. I think it just got, you know, just got a, got away there. Well, I encourage people to, uh, if they're not familiar with it, to listen to Lee's great interview with Randy Larson a few podcasts back. It's really good stuff. And I hate that he crashed it, but I've seen lots of nice-looking models like that that either people don't fly at all or they fly them in high-altitude circuits. So while I hate to see his plane crash, I appreciate that he flies it like an airplane. I can't wait to see the next one. I think it'll be, you know, not that he's, you know, not done anything with Fuddy Duddy. He made a lot of improvements onto it, but I, you should have seen, it was really neat and heartwarming to see all the people come up to him and, you know, just tell him how sad they felt that he lost it. And he was very upbeat about it. And he, he basically looked at everybody and said, you know, I am going to rebuild it. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to get another one up there. And then there was a lot of encouragement from everybody. Everybody wanted to see him bring that plane back out. So I, I, have no doubt we'll see that plane come back to life. Now, he said he bought that one from a guy who had several. or any more left of that original stash? I don't know. All right. Well, I think we'll take another break, and we'll be right back with our next segment. Okay, well, if anybody's been paying attention to the news lately, you've heard that Texas has had a series of floods lately. And, in fact, Lee had a pretty close call with flooding it where he lives. And so we we started talking about, well, if it came to uh, that period where you had to abandon ship and evacuate, what kind of things would you likely take that's RC-related? And and since it was Lee's had the closest of that kind of, uh, a fact. What do you? Th- what was? What? What's on your mind, Lee? What would you think you would grab and run? Well, disasters are all different. Mine was, mine was a slow flood. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I had time to prepare, and 
in my situation, um, our streets were flooding and it, it was scary. You know, it was scary. I, this was a new neighborhood. We've only been there three years. And I had to say to myself, well, it really does look like the water is going to hit our door. I've got a whole bunch of stuff in my workshop. What do I start picking up? So, I mean, I was literally grabbing everything and just tossing it on the table, the workbench, and then looking at some of the planes that I thought were were important to me. And that's kind of what the how the conversation with you guys came about, is if you had a situation where you had to save something, and let's just say you, you, you can't go back. You know the disaster is going to happen. I lucked out. Everything was safe. You know, I just put everything over the table. But, you know, like, what are those planes, what are those tools you would keep well for me it was definitely the the planes that my father had um the you know my kids call it peepaw plane and uh the trainer 40 stuff like that those were key planes because i'd like to keep them in the family um i would definitely try to th- you know keep some of my thunder and lightnings but if you had like a fire or something you had to grab something you know that's that's another question you know, what could you grab Honestly, there's nothing in my workshop that's worth risking my life to, to go grab if there's a fire. Um, but if I, for some reason, like if the fire was in the house and I was going in the garage and I could grab stuff, you know, I'd, I'd probably keep my, my radio gear. You know, I would try to rescue those same planes if I could. But at that point, it'd probably be just a, a grab what you can. Right? I mean. Yeah. Well, I think we have to preface this with saying, in this imaginary scenario, your your family's okay they're out of harm's way this is you're down to the the toys um and i'm with you lee i I think the the airframes are expendable and i don't really have any emotional ties to any of mine like uh, i'm sure you do with some of yours um so yeah it would come down to electronics uh, chargers radios the high dollar stuff that's small and easy to throw in a box and can fit in the car yeah, the, the the quick grab. I would. Yeah, I, I mean, for me, I'd forgo my lipos because there's always something better coming out. <laughs> Besides, they're going to be part of the fire. Pyrotechnics. <laughs> yeah, I agree too. I, I would probably grab the radios, the stuff that's small and portable, and you know, maybe fairly expensive. Most of my planes, I'm not really married to any of them, uh, even though they may have some sentimental value. I have some ones that are pretty old. But I could, generally speaking, it's generally probably not practical to be grabbing a whole bunch of planes and stuff unless you've got real, a lot of time. But transmitter, transmitter case, you can grab that and go real quick. Uh, and maybe a few choice items, but like a charger. But uh, those are already in boxes. So you can grab those, throw them in the car, and be gone. Uh, I'd, I'd like to interject here. I mean, this is interesting to me that both of you have not specified as a particular airframe and i know that i have and that's unique but really there's nothing that let me just try this way you have one plane to save terry what do you grab oh boy i think it depends on the day of the week that you ask me um which, which one's gonna charge a, batteries <laughs> <laughs> maybe or which one's gonna fit in the tiny space i have left um Gosh, I don't think I can answer that. I guess if I had to save just one, and it comes down to it, I would grab my PT-20, because it's the only thing that has any semblance of emotional value. Fits? How about the most expensive thing you got? I mean, if you can't go for um, sentimental value, how about one that's got, like, 
as you said, 20 servos and you use all the <laughs> Well, actually, you know, when I think about it, there is one plane I probably would grab, and that's my F8 Crusader conversion, simply because I put so much time and effort and love and, and into it that it's probably the closest thing to being something kind of unique and not irreplaceable, but very difficult to replace with, without doing a lot of work. How big is it? Uh, it's got, what, a 40-something-inch wingspan, maybe 50, 60 inches long. Okay. It's not terribly big. It doesn't really... The wings don't come off or anything, but it's not huge. It's a little bit long, but it's it's not very wide. You know, and as we talk about this, the first thought is, what would you get off the top of your head? And those things are the obvious stuff we already talked about, the high dollars. But I'm not afraid to admit that I'm a hoarder, at least in terms of RC stuff. And not so much airplanes, but little things. And so all over my workshop, I have stashes of all these little tools and materials and things that I know I'm going to get to and use somehow, somewhere, someday. And at some point down the road, after the fire, the flood, or whatever it is, comes and goes, that's when I'm going to say, oh, I should have grabbed that. I should have grabbed this mm. box or that bin. And the, how do you prepare for that? Maybe, Maybe I should make, like, what do they call it? A go bag? Yeah. <laughs> Bug out. Put all the really, the stuff that I would really take, put it in one convenient spot so yeah. when the tornado's coming, you just grab it and go in the basement. In case of emergency, grab this. Yeah. Well, for the flood, it was relatively easy. I mean, I, I will say I use a lot of the floor space, floor space. So, um, putting stuff on the tables, it was kind of a, and I, I was doing it very quickly because I, I only, and if to, to put this whole story in retrospect, the, the goal was I only wanted to spend it about 10 minutes in the garage so I could get back in the house and help my wife get like all the other stuff off our floors and, and the, the carpet. So I, I wasn't going to just try to rescue my planes and that's it. I said, I've only got 10 minutes. I'm going to go in there. I'm going to do what I can, unplug my, you know, equipment and just put everything up there and then be done with it. I'm not going to go back in the garage until after the storm's gone. And that's, that's what put me on, you know, on the edge of my seat was, you know, this is it. Once I leave this workshop, I'm, I'm not coming back until, you know, hopefully we, we survive this mess. And, you know, there was some stuff I had to leave on the floor. But, and unfortunately, there's some friends of mine who luckily, you know, didn't lose all their model stuff. But the floods did, you know, destroy their cars. Uh, some people had it go in their house. So my my situation was nothing compared to that. But you're right. Maybe you have to have like a little, little plan to say, you know what, if I did, you know, want to save something, that's the one. <laughs> to, like as you say, today. <laughs> Now, as it turned out, it was a moot point for you, right? You had no damage. It stopped somewhere short of your door. Just a few feet from my door, yeah. All right. Now, all of this talk, and I hadn't considered it before now, uh, it reminds me of when I lived in Houston, and I'm sure you guys did too, um, I had to evacuate twice to escape hurricanes. And and that first time, what was that, Ike? Um, I ran out of plywood to cover up the windows of my house and I had to rip apart my workbench for the plywood. <laughs> that stung. <laughs> That's hardcore. I laugh, but I cry. I feel your pain, my friend. <laughs> That's a sacrifice, huh? But I didn't really feel like I was in a position where I was having to consider what I was going to save. I, the whole thing was going to be a total loss if it hit. And thankfully it didn't. But 
there was a long time to recover because of the mayhem of tearing up my workshop and just throwing everything aside to to prepare to you know button up the house and get out of dodge yeah, yeah that's mm. life that is life that is life life don't talk to me about life well speaking of workbenches uh what do you guys got on your workbench I don't know what's on my workbench. I'm not home. <laughs> I just got back home. So Lee's gone from home. I just got here. Fitz, you're how many miles from your house? Oh, no, I'm in my house now. Oh, that's right. You're back, too. I'm so back, you and I just returned. But I've been away for two weeks, so I have nothing on my workbench either. <laughs> well, that was quick. <laughs> that was easy. <laughs> Well, uh, since we don't have anything on our workbenches uh, this time around, uh, we did want to continue the uh, discussion on tools since we had our little mini podcast. So uh, I brought to the the discussion today on uh, the soldering iron. Uh, I'm hoping a lot of people out there have one, but if you don't, uh, that's probably one of the other main tools I use a lot in my workbench. In fact, when I set up my workshop, I have the place where I actually build stuff, and then I turn around and have a little setup for my soldering iron and, uh, you know, the clamps and the vise and uh, where I put all my tools to do soldering. And uh, I don't know about you guys, but I've always had a weller, but (laughs) the one I have now, I got like 20 years ago... Uh, from a company that taught people how to solder for manufacturing business. The company I worked for trained these people. And I was just talking to one of these uh, um, instructors, and he just had this huge pile of uh, uh, temp-adjust soldering irons. And he goes, oh, yeah, those are our old ones. you want to take one? <laughs> and it was, a, it was a steal. And I've been using that thing ever since. It's a great little uh, – It's I probably got like a 2 to 3 millimeter flat wedge on it. Um, probably runs around 600 degrees when I use it and it's been running ever since uh, if I ever lose that one I'm, I'm sure I'll get a weller but what do you guys use do you do you have a solder station I actually have cheapo soldering irons like two I've got one that I think is a 50 watt just uh, you, you plug it in and you get what you get I use that for the the heavy gauge stuff and then for the the lighter things I and for soldering on circuit boards i've got a i think it's a 25 watt with a smaller tip so i i've been tempted to get the stations with the adjustable temperatures and things but i guess i'm just setting my ways yeah like terry i have multiple soldering irons uh like i mentioned before in a previous podcast i actually have sort of two workshops uh so i have a one for one workshop it's sort of just a plain old 30 water i think uh, soldering pen and it and I recently did get a soldering station. Uh, it's an El Cheapo one, so it works, but unless it's at 90 to 100% power, it doesn't really get all that hot, uh, but it's decent. And I also have a soldering gun, which is, I think, pulling 100, 150 watts for something really heavy duty. Uh, so it, it depends on what I'm doing. I'll rotate for different soldering irons. Uh, I, actually, I think I do have a weller. I think the soldering Iron I used for the old round cell batteries with the hammerhead tip, I believe, was a weller. I'm not really partial to any particular brands. I look mainly for what does the job and what kind of power levels and what kind of tips because I have some jobs need a narrow tip, some jobs need a wide tip. 
that kind of stuff. On mine, because it's a it's a brand I don't think I've ever found. It, it was a it was a long time ago when I got it, so I've I've really been able to keep it running very well, and the tip on it is just perfect for what I need. And I know that if it something ever happens or if the tip cracks or something, I, I'm I'm going to have to just completely swap out everything. But it's I, not a replaceable tip. Well, it it is, but it it's I've looked in several places, been online, and I cannot find the the same type of tip. Uh, it's very unique. Um, it's and it's not compatible with Weller tips, so it um, you know it's what I got. Um, EPO uh, Electronic Parts Outlet here in Houston used to carry uh, a tip for it, so I think the the one I have on it now was the first replacement I ever got because the one it came with was pretty shot. But uh, again, long time ago. You, you uh, might have to check out uh, eBay or something, maybe to find I, something. I might, but it's just such a weird size. Um, but I mean, I'm also not against upgrading to a, a better you know, Weller type machine that's got better tips available and hopefully, you know, current. <laughs> that's yeah. something you're hoping to find. That's a, the, the advantage of going with a brand name is it's a lot easier to find tips and that kind of stuff for it. And now, Lee, are you the one who was telling me that you use a torch for soldering some of your big battery connectors? I do. I use a Benz. Oh, gosh. Benzomatic, is that what they call it? I think it's what it's called. Yeah. Uh, torch to do my bullets. Yeah, so my EC5s, EC3s, um, I use that, and uh, it works out real well. In fact, I was going to mention this. I was going to do a uh, how-to video on, on soldering Deans the way I do it. Uh, I've done a how-to video on on soldering, well, actually torching uh, Dubro connectors. I don't know if you guys ever saw that, but I'll probably do one that'll show off that soldering iron that I have. So I'll put that on YouTube and then um, I'll also do one with the, uh, the torch. So thanks for mentioning that. At what gauge do you make the jump from your big iron to the torch? Probably 14, 14 to 12. Oh, really? Yeah. And definitely 12 and 10. I mean, you just, I'm think cause I think in Dean's connectors and once I have to skip, cause trying to put a, a, a 14 and 12 on, on Dean's is, really tough it's a lot of heat yeah i agree any guys any of you guys actually use uh have extra flux you use i do i have a flux paste that i got from radio shack that's lasted me forever yeah same for me i have a little, little tin can of it and it's it's lifetime supply but it comes in real handy i don't think a lot of people realize how handy having some extra flux is and soldering stuff yeah, I once tried soldering, back in the round cell days, I tried putting together some battery packs, and I, I hate to think what I did to those poor batteries, <laughs> trying to get solder stuck to them without flux. And I yeah. eventually learned better. It helps a lot. Even even if you're using rosin core solder, extra flux, it helps a lot. Yeah, the difference is night and day. And I have a weird... I, uh... <laughs> Go ahead, Lee. <laughs> when the round table strikes. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I have a setup. I'm used to it. I don't remember all the specifics. Like, I have a solder, uh, a type of solder that I, I did some research on that works great for me. I, I don't believe it's 60-40. It's some other odd number. But when I started using it and realizing it, that it, it was doing everything so well, I went on eBay and, and grabbed, like, three spools of it. And it's, you know, it's still sitting in my my cabinet there. I don't think I'll run out in this lifetime, but it, it's, I found a system that works for me. So you're talking about flux and, you know, I've got the little jar next to my vice and I have Q-tips that I'll sit there and dip and then I'll just brush on my connectors. And it's, you know, it's just a system I have. So 
I, I, I like that tool. I don't know about you guys, but I actually had to take uh, a class on soldering, or soldering as part of a class, some many moons ago. And uh, you may think uh, soldering is is pretty basic, but there are some techniques that you really should know and learn. And so if you're new to soldering, uh, or if even if you think you know what you're doing, it's, it pays to watch some instructional videos from people, from professionals, to see how really good soldering techniques. Well, my father was the professional. He used to do it all the time. And the one lesson that echoes in my head all the time is heat the work, not the solder. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. You want to heat the work and make sure both, whatever you're soldering, try to get heat evenly, and then you apply the solder. Yeah. Also, uh, a little bit of solder on the tip, too, helps. It helps distribute the heat. Now, I'm no pro at soldering, but I'm at least comfortable with the stuff I do. And I think I've shown you guys this before, but I have a, a very vivid example of the worst soldering ever. I bought a used airplane just about a year ago, and I thought it was pretty much a turnkey project, but I saw a couple little things that I wanted to address, and the more I dug things apart, the more I figured I needed to dig more. And so eventually I just took the whole thing apart. And it's a twin EDF model. And I had to pull apart these pylons that were glued together and pulled these motors out. The bullet connectors that were on those motors were... I can't even describe how they were soldered. I think the adjective I used at the time was it looked like the guy had heated a butter knife on the stove and used that as a solder iron. And he had... Big bullets that were soldered directly to little bullets that were then soldered to the wires. And a picture would, I'll put a picture on the website. It's just, it's crazy. Never solder angry. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So at the risk of pushing this way too long, here's a question for you. Do you clean up the flux after you've made the joint? I it, don't. I've heard that it's corrosive. It um, is. It is, but I don't think my planes will last long enough for that to matter. Yeah. Uh, so uh, th- when I watched the guys that I worked with at NASA do the solder joints, they'd make the connection, then they immediately had a little alcohol dispenser and Q-tips, and they would clean up all the excess flux. My dad was religious on that. I I, I guess I got lazy because when I realized it wasn't affecting <laughs> the connectors or my planes didn't last long enough <laughs> for the yeah. connector to fail first. Um, I mean, I do on occasion. I will say when I do the bullets, when I do my EC5s and I uh, tin my wire and then I fill the hole um, on the bullet first, um, you'll get the residue. And I'll clean up that residue because I know that in time, it'll start to put that white crystal powder around it. I don't know if you've ever seen it. So it, I, oh yeah. I will I will clean the bullets up because of that. Uh, but like on my deans and stuff, I, I typically I typically don't. And, and now that you've said that, it's probably something I should revisit. So it's a good idea. Yeah. Just you know, I'll admit that I've never done it. Yeah. For my <laughs> stuff. The laziness it, it rules. I'll wait till it, it gets hard after a while, and I'll I'll chip it off with an exacto or something well here's one for me that you were talking about this this guy's terrible soldering work one thing i've noticed is that i know some people who never clean the tip of their soldering gun after they work and and that's the other thing my dad taught me i use a sponge some people use the little copper 
shavings, but I use a sponge. But I am religious about every time I solder, I clean the tip of my my soldering gun, uh, soldering iron, excuse me. And and that's why I think this tip that I have has lasted so well, and it looks brand new. Um, mm. I I think that's a very important step you must take when you solder, and not to just leave, you know, the flux and all that stuff on there. I think that's a that's a must if you're taking a lesson. Yeah, the, the the technique I was taught was the same thing: is to clean the tip when you're done, and then add, put a blob of solder on it, and then le- let it rest that way. You know, for storage. Yeah, I clean the tip, but I must be doing it wrong because every few months I have to take some steel wool or a Scotch Brite to the tip and kind of clean off all the oxidation and other stuff. And every now and then I have to take a, a file to it and and file out all the pits on the tip. It's it, the tip itself lasts a long time. Well, I kind of wonder if that's due to either bad temp or the solder you use. I I kind of feel like I've met that happy medium with with the solder I'm using and the temperature of settings I've got, where my tip never seems to have that problem. I think it's the sponge you're using. <laughs> it's a magic sponge. <laughs> Is it sponge worthy? <laughs> <laughs> but um, bum. So you think you're sponge worthy? Yes, I think I'm sponge worthy. I think I'm very sponge worthy. <laughs> Seinfeld. <laughs> Seinfeld. Oh, <laughs> I got the joke. <laughs> oh, I'm Wendy Terry. Say goodnight, Fitz. That's the thing I remember about Seinfeld. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've soldered this into the ground. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, Seinfeld. Seinfeld's got nothing on me. And speaking of nothing, I think we're done with this podcast. As always, thanks, guys, and we'll see you on the next episode. Please visit our website at rcroundtable.com where you can send us comments and suggestions and listen to our other great podcasts. Those who live in Las Vegas can listen to us over the radio at the all-new Magic 97.9 FM, KIOF LP Las Vegas.